If Washington wants to get right with voters, it has to start listening to them. Welcome to Beyond the Bubble. I'm Alex Rorty, a national political correspondent covering Democrats for McClatchy. And I'm Andrea Dresch, Washington correspondent for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram covering politics here in D.C. This is CNN Breaking News. Justice Anthony Kennedy will be retiring. Justice Anthony Kennedy was the man in the middle. This leaves a major opening for President Donald J. Trump to fill. As you heard, no doubt a thousand different times, Justice Anthony Kennedy stepped down from his lifetime post as the swing vote in the United States Supreme Court. Seat won't be open for long, though. President Trump announced his nominee for the job, an appeals court judge, Brett Kavanaugh. He's a brilliant jurist with a clear and effective writing style universally regarded as one of the finest and sharpest legal minds of our time. We'll likely get no one better to talk about the implications of this nominee, at least from the liberal perspective, than NARAL Pro-Choice America's Elise Hogue. That's the National Abortion Reproductive Rights Action League, the oldest pro-choice organization in America. For context, we also have Dr. Margaret Russell from California's Santa Clara University. She focuses on constitutional law and can help us suss out whether or not Roe versus Wade is really on the table. All right, you ready? Let's do it. Does it ever seem to you that President Trump has done more than any president in just 16 months? You can't let the critics get in the way of your dreams. When people are prepared to fight, there's nothing that we cannot do. We have a very different view of what America ought to look like. Our Republican friends better look out. So to all Americans, hear these words. You will never be ignored again. So our our next guest is Elise Hogue, and we wanted to bring her on because really, if you want to understand how liberals and progressives are reacting to this nomination by President Trump, there's really no one better to talk to than Elise, who really, I think, led the resistance to Neil Gorsuch in that confirmation fight last year. Already feels like a long time ago, but it was last year. Stakes are a little higher this time around. Stakes would appear to be even higher this time around. Uh, Elise, thank you so much for joining the show. Happy to be here. So first question's a a blunt one. Do you think Brett Kavanaugh is going to be confirmed? You know, I think that we're uh, experiencing unprecedented energy, and I wouldn't even say from the progressive base. In fact, what we know from a June Kaiser Family Foundation poll is that the vast majority of Americans are deeply concerned about Roe being upheld and a whopping over 70 percent of independents want Roe to be upheld. And so we think that every single senator needs to do their jobs, listen to their constituents, understand the stakes and know that they hold, you know, the futures and freedom of generations of Americans in their hands. We do think it's an uphill battle, but we also know that their talking points that they have the votes is an attempt to dissuade the American people from having a voice in this process. We have the people on our side and the inclinations we're getting from our phones, our emails, and even just turnout at the Supreme Court last night is the people are ready for this fight. If you're working to dispel the idea that he can't be stopped, which senators are you focusing on right now? Well, I mean, 
I think all eyes are on the red state Democrats as well as Senators Collins and Murkowski. And I think that's a, a reasonable place to start. What we know is that Senators Collins and Murkowski have always upheld their commitment to abortion rights through Roe. And, you know, we're, we're pleased that Susan Collins said that this nominee must demonstrate that. Given President Trump's litmus test that any Supreme Court nom would be committed to ending Roe v. Wade, the burden of responsibility is on this administration and this nominee to demonstrate that that is not the case. And, and we don't think that they can prove that. This is a issue for red state Dems, who not only have the vast majority of their constituents supporting Roe and the Affordable Care Act, which the president also promised to end, but also really want to see their senators act independently from this administration. And, you know, one of the things that was being reported this morning is that the way that Kavanaugh won Trump over was in his humility. And I think that that doesn't actually serve him well when the vast majority of Americans Americans are looking to the Supreme Court to be a check on the runway excesses of this administration. You know, at least we've had this conversation a few times about red state senators like Joe Manchin or Claire McCaskill or Heidi Heitkamp or Joe Donnelly. What do you think happens? Let, let's say Joe Donnelly, you know, he voted for Neil Gorsuch. What do you think happens if he votes for Brett Kavanaugh? Do you think that's the moment that he loses re-election? I actually don't. I think the opposite is true. And I think Paul Begala made that point really clearly in a CNN column this morning, where he argued that the red state Democrats have actually been handed a very clear choice with the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh. He pointed to the fact that even in these states that went for Trump, the majority of constituents support Roe, support the Affordable Care Act, but even more importantly, want to see their senators act independently from the Trump administration. And Kavanaugh is not going to be independent from the Trump administration. He also made the point, and I think it's a really, really important one, that they buy no favors from President Trump, even if they vote yes on Kavanaugh. But what they do is earn the ire of the tried and true Democrats in those states that make up the bulk of their reelection strategy. And I think that those folks know it. You know, you're looking at a state like North Dakota where personhood, which would have ended abortion, was defeated soundly on the ballot when put in front of the voters. So I think the equation really adds up to not only them doing the right thing by blocking this nominee, but also conveniently doing the politically expedient thing. Well, I mean, would you if, if someone like Joe Donnelly does vote to confirm, would you then tell people in Indiana, you know what, don't bother voting in November? I got to be really honest with you, Alex, mm -hmm. based on what we're experiencing, it wouldn't matter what we told people because that's where people are at. We're living in a time where people are worried that the government is not actually serving their interests, is not standing up for women's rights, human rights, civil rights. You know, they're concerned about the fate of an independent judiciary. And I think that, you know, not fighting to win and not blocking this nomination, it won't matter what groups like ours say, because the voters are in the driver's seat and they know what's at stake. They know that these senators hold the keys to our future and our freedom 
in their hands and that, you know, the choice is clear. That being said, if what you're asking is, is this vote a threshold for our support, absolutely it is. What we would do in those states and do do in those states is make sure that we are lifting up legislators at the federal and state level, which would become even more important if Roe were gutted and abortion was criminalized, um, who are pro-choice champions, who will protect women. And even if it's a, you know, several cycle process, the voters want those folks in office where they know their rights are protected. Having covered 2016 Senate races, Alex and I both, we've watched the right use the courts as a political motivator so effectively. What does the left need to do to to do that this time? You know, I think, first of all, one of the things that we're really clear about is that this is not really a left versus right thing. This is a American people versus extremist position. And I think that, you know, blocking Kavanaugh is actually the moderate thing to do because it salvages the independence of a court that is going to put the rule of law above this administration's ideological whims. That being said, I do think you're seeing a number of groups mobilize at unprecedented rates. And we're seeing ads being run in states, most certainly lifting up the wishes of of the constituents of those senators. But we're also seeing calls pour into these offices. We have uh, visits to those offices happening today. And we're driving towards a 50-state day of action where there will be a mass mobilization on August 26th, which happens to be Women's Equality Day. Also my birthday. I love being born on Women's Equality Day. It's very co- it's very coincidental. Uh, very coincidental. Did not shape my destiny at all. Where, you know, those senators are going to have to go home and hear from their constituents before they cast a final vote. But what about Chuck Schumer uh, and all this, at least? You know, he is under pressure, I think, at all times, really, from members of his base and, and the broader public to keep his, his caucus in line. Um, do you think, is the expectation... Uh, from you that he is going to go to Joe Manchin or to Joe Donnelly um, or Heidi Heitkamp and tell them, look, uh, do the right thing here and, and you know, vote, vote no on, on Brett Kavanaugh. Do you think he has a responsibility to, to hold his caucus together? We do. I mean, he's the leader of the Democratic Party, and there's never been a clear choice for the Democratic Party in my lifetime than to vote no on this nomination. And we do believe that the senator understands, or I should say the minority leader, understands the stakes. And there was an Intercept article yesterday that stated as much. You know, we know that if we are to have the turnout that we need in November, have the um, voters fired up to put the electoral federal electoral and congressional power back in the hands of the Democrats, that's very dependent on Democrats being seen as fighting for our rights on this nomination. So I think the two are linked, and I think Senator Schumer understands that. But he is being asked to whip this vote, and we have no reason to believe he's not right now. You mentioned some polling earlier in the show. What is the playbook for convincing senators who are in a position to decide this? Is it similar to what we saw on some of the um, cabinet nominations, like flooding the phone lines? Well, I mean, I think it's, you know, all of the tools in the toolbox. Certainly, we know calls are pouring in already, but I think people really, really want to make their voices and their faces known to the elected officials who work for them. So as I mentioned, we know our members in conjunction with Indivisible members and Move On members are starting district state office visits today in many of these states. You know, I think we're going to continue to see all sorts of 
methods by which the stories are being told of what hangs in the balance and that those senators are forced to confront not the heads of institutions like me, but our members that span every state in this nation and the members of other organizations who are actually these senators' constituents. And never before have I seen so many people in these states really embracing the idea that these senators worked for them and they want them to vote now. 2016 and the 2016 presidential election, famously or infamously, depending on your perspective, you know, the the feeling was that conservatives simply cared more about the vacancy on the Supreme Court and that they were more motivated to vote for Trump because of that. What in your mind has flipped then uh, between now and then that, I mean, in in your view, clearly that, that liberals and progressives and the broader public are more energized on this issue? I think that's right. And I think it's really, really dangerous to deal in historics on this. You know, we know that for 40 years, the extreme conservative base has whipped themselves into a frenzy around not just Supreme Court nominees, quite honestly, but lower court nominees as well, whereas the progressive base has actually wanted the court to be independent. And so that's not risen to the to the level of voting issue. I think that changed, honestly, starting on January 21st, 2017 when we saw the largest protest in this country's history and five million women and allies marched in the streets because we knew that this day was inevitable. President Trump campaign on a litmus test or on two litmus tests for the Supreme Court. One was to end Roe and criminalize abortion and punish women. And the other was to overturn the Affordable Care Act and roll back health care desperately needed by most Americans. So I think that turnout the day after his inauguration was indicative of how seriously people were taking that fight. Any specific cases you'd point to that you'd say would cause an, an awakening since Gorsuch? Oh, well, I mean, I think there are so many, particularly, you know, for us, there was the one that came down the day before Kennedy's retirement, where the court ruled that fake women's health centers have the right to lie to women and deceive them in order to prevent them from getting abortion care. That was Nifla v. Becerra. Um, But I think that this court has been incredibly hostile, not just to women, but to civil rights and to workers' rights as we saw with the Janus case. But I think even more, and I think this is really important, what we've seen is a hostility towards precedent. And I think that's really crucially important in this moment because what we're not seeing is people wanting to hear from senators or from Brett Kavanaugh some mealy-mouthed commitment to settle law and precedent. We need to hear an affirmative declaration from this nominee of his commitment to uphold the rights enshrined in Roe, the Affordable Care Act. And even then, I got to say, because it is Kavanaugh, you know, I think people know that decades of, of precedent where women have gained power and equality through access to abortion and contraception are on the line right now. And I know you don't like to look at this as left versus right, but Democrats can't stop this on their own. Do they run a risk at all of overpromising? If if would the American people think that they just didn't try hard enough? If this came down to a party line decision? Look, I think what we know is that if the Democrats hold the line, 
that Mitch McConnell cannot lose a single senator. We're talking about a razor-thin margin. And I think that the American people know a fight when they see one. They know when senators are standing up for us when they go to the mat. We saw it in the Affordable Care Act repeal fight in Congress, which nobody believed we could win. And I think that, you know, senators who fight will see voters wanting them to stay in their positions come November because we know there are many fights ahead of us. Hey, Elise, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. So there we've got the playbook of the left on this. Right. And and it's interesting. You know, I, I think Elise is holding out hope that a lot of these red staters like Joe Donnelly or, or Heidi Heitkamp vote no on confirmation. I'm not sure she's going to get her wish. Really going to be interesting to see if, you know, a group like hers or some of the constituents that she says she speaks for do decide after something like that, no, you know what, he voted to confirm Justice Brett Kavanaugh, I'm not going to vote in November. That'd be really tough for a lot of red state Democrats. And if the left is ever going to use the courts the way that the right does, that's sort of where they would have to be. That's that's exactly right. I mean, if you can see it from her perspective, maybe there is some short-term pain for a long-term gain uh, when it comes to the, the politics of the Supreme Court. I'm sure others in her party might disagree. I'm sure they would. Okay, so for uh, an independent and academic perspective on what is obviously a historical event here with the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh, we wanted to bring on uh, Professor Margaret Russell. Uh, She's a professor at the law school at Santa Clara University. Professor, thank you so much for coming on the show. You're welcome. You know, I think just off the bat, um, what are your first impressions of of Justice Kavanaugh? Well, the nomination, first of all, is, is not a surprise. We've all been hearing about a couple of names on the short list that the Federalist Society, a very conservative society, had developed for the president. And because Judge Kavanaugh has actually been on an appeals court for 12 years, it's been possible to learn some more about his background and the impression of his opinion so far is that he's a very conservative judge, but he's, he's not at the point of ideology of the justice he's replacing. He's not really a replacement for Anthony Kennedy ideologically. He would be closer to the far right where Gorsuch and Alito and Thomas are. Well, Dr. Russell, can you walk us through the reality of overturning Roe versus Wade? How difficult is this? And, and are there cases coming up through the courts right now that would challenge this issue? Right now, no. But here's why so many people are focusing on Roe versus Wade and overturning Roe. It was very clear from President Trump's campaigning and promises that Roe versus Wade has been a target. And even though you can't expect to ask any nominee for the the Supreme Court, would you overrule this or how would you decide in that case? That that would not be an appropriate nor a, um, a useful question, actually. It's very clear that the people picked by Trump so far would be prepared to do that. Now, when we look at Judge Kavanaugh in terms of what he has decided, and he, he does have a dissent from a court of appeals opinion involving access to an abortion by a minor 17-year-old girl who was in uh, an immigration detention facility. And one of the things that's going to be looked at is his opinion in that dissent, which was basically a dissent from releasing her to have access to the abortion. Even if the case to overrule Roe is not currently in the court, you can be sure that there is a roadmap that's being planned by 
conservative group, the Federalist Society, Heritage Foundation, Pacific Legal Institute, that would provide the opportunity for a case to come up in the next few years. As opposed to full, a full-fledged overturning of Roe v. Wade, is there like a middle ground here that you could see the court settling on? Well, I, I don't think it's likely to, that there will be a middle ground if Kavanaugh is confirmed. But, but yes, I mean, let me give you a couple examples of the, the cases that have been decided since Roe that rely on Roe but, and are likely to serve as examples of the kinds of, of laws that are going to come up for review. So Roe versus Wade, as a decision held that women have a fundamental liberty interest from the Constitution, and it's derived from life, liberty, and happiness, to decide whether or not to have a statement, to make that decision without the government stepping in to prevent them from making that decision. Since Roe versus Wade, there's been more discussion of what interest the government has in preserving fetal life. So in the cases since then, uh, you've looked at more of a balancing interest. And in the Casey decision, in which Kennedy actually was, was a key part of preserving Roe, the test that the court said should apply, the question that should apply is this. Does the restriction on abortion, let's say that any state, Texas, Oklahoma, et cetera, does it pose what's called an undue burden on a woman's access to abortion? It could be a spousal signature requirement, right, for a woman. It could, and those have been struck down. So if it's not down the middle, right, and it is overruling Roe, then presumably the nature of the reasoning would be either that Roe is overruled and women never had and don't have a liberty interest. So in other words, choice groups will tell you this. Right now, there, there are a number of challenges in the court in which pro-choice people are trying to challenge laws that they argue are preventing women, especially poor women and women of color, from getting access to abortion. And that's what they're fighting now. But what would happen if Kavanaugh went to the court is that almost surely those laws would be likely to be upheld. So we're really talking about two categories when it comes to the, the legal ramifications of abortion rights, it sounds like. There's one category where you just mentioned where it is just the, basically the fundamental right that women have to an abortion. And that would be really rooted in, in Roe v. Wade. But there's also a, a second category of what are the kind of burdens that governments, in this case really state governments, can place on women seeking abortions. It sounds like you're of the opinion in that second category that based on your reading of, of Justice Kavanaugh that basically it, it, states are going to be allowed to, to place these burdens, that that's no longer really – people who are proponents of that uh, can feel good this morning. What about that first category, though? I mean, that really drives the heart of what we see in the political response, Andrea, uh, from the right and the left, talking about, you know, just that core right uh, established in Roe v. Wade. Do you think that that, too, is in jeopardy? Well, here's why I think that's a a strong possibility and that Judge Kavanaugh should be examined very closely. Judge Kavanaugh uh, has described himself, and is described by others, as, as what's called an originalist. And originalism most often talked about in association with the late Justice Scalia, focuses on the text. And originalists often say going beyond the text and the original meaning of the text at the time it was adopted is judicial legislating. Judge Kavanaugh has said the text of the law is the law. But what that means in terms of modern jurisprudence, that there is actually a whole range of 
equality rights, including the fundamental liberty interest in contraception and abortion, that Kavanaugh could very well say they're not real because they didn't come from the text. And in going back to the, so for example, going back to the original text of the Constitution, it's really impossible that they considered women at all. That's why it's very problematic. It sounds like it would open the door to a whole host of other things that could be uh, rolled backwards. Absolutely. Uh, what would you compare overturning Roe versus Wade to? What is the, the last time that the court did something retroactive like that of that stature? I can't think of another big decision even though there have been cases that overrule, like Brown overruling segregation and Plessing. But something that's discussed in that way is it's very notable in the area of abortion, that people have accepted that this is a right that women have. And even though they have, you know, there's still lots of arguments about it, it's been settled by the Supreme Court for decades. And just returning to our original topic, though, given that focus on the regulatory state, do you think that it's likely that this court would focus on some of those issues before it ever came back to something like taking up um, abortion rights? They could do both. And, and, and I, as I was actually thinking about this, that um, how soon could these cases come up? Well, uh, there's one case set in October, and if Kavanaugh were confirmed, but there's, there's a pretty open docket, and it takes four, any four justices on the court to decide to grant review in a particular case. So that gives a lot of power to uh, the justices to look at um, the, the hundreds of cases, actually, that are going to be appealed to the Supreme Court. Most of them don't get a hearing, and they pluck out the ones they want. If they're four who say, I want to look at this case, um, let's grant review. So that gives them a lot of power, and it could be that if there is... Um, something in the area of reproductive rights, that could come up this term, uh, as well as the, the regulatory cases. There, there's certainly a lot of cases in the appeals court, which would be the next step down. And when did they lay out their, their docket of next year's cases? They have already accepted some cases for review. They've scheduled one for argument. And you know, that, a lot of that happens um, in the beginning of the term, which is October, which is October. You know, Professor, let me ask you one potentially far-flung hypothetical. Do you think that's possible? Let's say that the Justice Kavanaugh is confirmed and takes a seat for the, the next term of the Supreme Court. Do you think it's possible that we have a case determining the legality of, of Roe v. Wade before the 2020 presidential election? I think that's certainly possible. I mean, I don't have a particular case in mind, but the timeline, you know, it, it wouldn't have to take a couple of years for a Roe-type case to reach the Supreme Court. Dr. Russell, I think we could keep you here all day. We need to sign up for your class. <laughs> you, you've uh, taught us a lot. Well, hey, Dr. Russell, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. So, Andrea, I, I know, personally speaking, that was some good context for me to understand what is obviously a very complicated legal issue. Absolutely. She could have stayed here all day. She could have stayed here all day. I'd sign up for a class. Me too. Okay. Now it's time for the lightning round. Andrea, you're up first. All right. I want to do an update on a previous lightning round that Alex brought to our attention on this show. Miss MJ Hager, a, a congressional candidate in Texas, uh, since that viral video that she launched has now raised $1.1 million, her campaign says. She's won four Democrats in Texas that have raised over a million dollars. But this is not a story of um, challenger sneaks up on underprepared incumbent. Um, John Carter, the Republican in that seat right now, is on the Appropriations Committee, a great spot for raising money. Hasn't announced his Q2 number yet, but has a 
uh, $750,000 in the bank. So this is not a not your normal uh, sneak up on the incumbent game. Not your normal sleepy Central Texas congressional race, it sounds it's like. Certainly not. Okay, so my lightning round is the Ohio 12 special election. Yes, there's actually a special election. There's another special election before the midterm election. Thank God. (laughs) Thank God. Yeah, right. Just can't get enough of those special elections. This one is in a central Ohio district that a lot of congressional prognosticators have said, look, if Democrats really are going to have a good year in November, this is the kind of race that they could conceivably win. It's a matchup with Democrat Denny O'Connor versus Republican Trey Balderson. I've already seen notices going out about preparing for early voting in this race. It's it's one that's really, I think, kind of snuck up on the national media. I think we have enough to cover. Hasn't gotten the same kind of attention that, like, Connor Lamb or, God help us all, John Ossoff and Georgia Six received. Um, but nonetheless, is it going to be a very good bellwether of the, the political environment? We love a good crystal ball. We love a good crystal ball. Andrea, an interesting show, a lot of Roe v. Wade discussion, something I feel like we're going to be talking a lot about the next couple of years. Any excuse to start talking about 2020? Thank you to producer Jordan Marie Smith, and thank you, our listeners. We want to hear from you. So please send your questions and your comments to btb at mcclatchy.com or connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash beyondthebubblepod. Tell us what you're seeing in your battleground states. We might even ask you to call into the show. And check us out on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. We want to say thank you to everyone who's left us a review or a rating. Talk Talk to to you you next week. week.